Well, I don't know if many of you are aware of this, but I'm a big fan of Calvin. His imagination got him into a lot of trouble and also took him on some great adventures. If you're confused at all already, I want you to know that I'm talking about Calvin from Calvin and Hobbes. Some of my favorite stories come from that comic strip. Uh, the most remarkable, though, are those that involve him building a snowman and lots of snowmen that are in some sort of elaborate picture or scene that gets carried away with his imagination. And I remember thinking as a kid how awesome it would be to create such a scene in my own front yard. And I realized all you really need to get started with such a big project is something small, a snowball. You just roll it up and it gets bigger and bigger until you have a large ball that you can't pick up. I did find out pretty quickly that there was not nearly enough snow in my front yard to make such an elaborate scene. And if you don't know what I'm talking about, I encourage you to look that up. But the point of what I'm saying to get us started is that God makes promises to Abram that are kind of like a snowball. Though they don't start out small, they gain substance as time moves on until the full orbed picture of what God is going to accomplish is revealed to him. In the midst of those promises that God makes are conditions that God places on his people. And as we fallen creatures prove unable and unwilling, rebellious, to keep our end of the relationship, God shows us through his own faithfulness in Genesis 17 that those promises to Abraham show the nature of who God is and how he is going to give us a solution to our unfaithfulness. The main idea I want you to walk away with this morning is this. God has made you his in Christ so that you would live as his faithful covenant people. That's kind of long, so I'll say it again. God has made you his in Christ so that you would live as his faithful covenant people. This morning we're gonna look at four characteristics that describe God's covenant people. The headings that I'm gonna walk us through are based mainly out of verses one through three, specifically that God reveals himself as God Almighty. God commands Abram to walk before him. He commands him to be blameless and Abram falls on his face. The four characteristics then of God's people are these. God's covenant people believe in God and what he has promised. God's faithful covenant people represent Christ to the world. Three, God's covenant people pursue holiness. And four, God's covenant people live in reverent fear. So the first, God's faithful covenant people believe in God and what he has promised. You can see in Genesis 17:1, God announces himself to Abram. I am God Almighty. This is the first time that this name for God is used in the Bible. It's only used again in God, in, by God in reference to himself in Genesis 35, where God reveals himself to Jacob. And in that same scene, God says that he's going to be nations and kings, and he even renames Jacob to Israel. What else is significant about God being God Almighty? Well, in verse 4, God emphasizes his role in the covenant that he has made with Abram. If, you're ha if you have an ESV Bible in your lap, you're going to not see words that are there in some other translations, such as the New American Standard. But it starts off with an emphatic I, or as for me. 
as it is in the New American Standard. As for me, behold, my covenant is with you. God is reminding Abram of the promises that he has made to him from the beginning. He's reminding him of the covenant that he cut, which we talked about in chapter 15, and what he will do that is necessary to keep the covenant. When God called Abram and first revealed himself to him in chapter 12 that he will become a great nation and make himself great, he swore an oath to him. He also told him that the, all the earth would be blessed in him. How Abram is going to bless the earth is what is essentially being developed here. We can see in verse four, God is telling Abram that he's going to be the father of a multitude of nations. And it's at this point that God changes his name to Abraham. In the latter half of the chapter, the promise is explicitly tied to Sarai, whose name is changed to Sarah. But this multitude of nations, not just an, that you will become a nation, but the multitude of nations means that he's going to have offspring that are not just the fruit of his loins, but that share his faith, that come from the whole world. The promise that was given to and about Ishmael in the last chapter reflects some fruitfulness and blessing, but not the covenant. The covenant blessings are not coming through Ishmael. Instead, the blessing to be, that's gonna to come to the world, come to the whole earth, it's gonna be in Isaac. Ishmael, is said, is gonna be against everyone. He's gonna be against his brother. But I want you to think about the tension that is being felt here by Abraham. Abraham is 99 years old. Though it's possible for older men to still bear children, Fertility rates decline as you get older, and even more of an obstacle is Sarai. We're told in the last chapter that she's barren, and it's probably not lost on Abram, the reality of what we know as menopause, that Sarai is well past the age of childbearing. As far as Abraham and Sarah are concerned, her womb is dead, and life does not come from death. But God has promised to make him exceedingly fruitful and to bless the world through his offspring. And Abraham is believing this. The whole characteristic of Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness, that covers the entire account of, of what Abraham's interaction with God is like. God Almighty alone has the ability to uphold the covenant. I mentioned this two weeks ago in Genesis 15 that the covenant with Abram was initiated there. God cut the covenant and promised to bear the penalty if it was violated. But after God says who he is, he gives a command as a condition, which we'll get to in a moment. But see in verse two, the purpose that I may make my covenant between me and you. A little further on in verse seven, God says he will establish his covenant as an everlasting covenant. So both of these words, establish and give, are different than cut. What this means is that God is upholding the covenant. God is reaffirming the existence of the covenant. And this is necessary because Abraham has not seen any fulfillment so far. And he's likely struggling in his faith. It's been 24 years since God first called him. God tells Abraham that this covenant is between him and his offspring and it is an everlasting covenant. He's putting eternity in perspective. God had promised to give Abram the land, and he even said the land would be given to his offspring forever when Abram and Lot separated from each other. It's been 14 years just since that promise. 
And Abraham is probably still wondering, what will you give me? I think what's more important here is what God says at the end of verse 7. He says he will be God to you and to your offspring after you. He will give them an everlasting possession and he will be their God. The promise of God to Abraham that he will be his God is the promise of promises. This is the definition of being in a covenant relationship. This is the promise that was given to the first generation of Israelites who were freed from Egyptian slavery. And these words would have stood out to them as the first recipients of this, like a red flag or a yellow flag, whatever stands out to you. But in Exodus 6, this is what God said to the Israelites. He says, I will take you to be my people and I will be your God. And you shall know that I am the Lord, your God, who has brought you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. This relationship is at the heart of the covenant. God is going to be the God of his people. He is their God and he is their deliverer. And this is the God that Abraham is believing in. This is the God who we need to believe in. This is what we need to seek from God, that relationship with him in Christ. Some of us are tempted to seek the gifts of God more than God himself. So I want to ask you a few questions. What do you seek from God? Are you looking to certain benefits of being in a right right relationship with God? Maybe you just enjoy the fellowship or the community that exists in a church. Perhaps you like the moral uprightness that matches your traditions as opposed to the things we see going on in the world. Perhaps you just agree with how things are said or done and it makes you feel comfortable to be here. But I want you to ask yourself, what is my profession of faith anchored to? Do you understand that God has worked your salvation so that you would be reconciled to him, so that you would be reconciled with him? Is God the one whom you are seeking communion with? That is what God has saved us for. He hasn't just saved us so that we could shed some sin and have some easier things going on in our life. He has saved us so that we could have a relationship with him, so that he would be your God. This is the God that Abraham believed him. This is the God that you need to believe in, the one who has made himself God for you. And he is almighty. He can do all things. The greatest thing that he has done is reconcile us to himself. The second thing we see is that God's covenant faithful people represent Christ. God's faithful covenant people live as representatives of him to a world. And we are called by God to represent Christ. Looking back at verse 1, the first command that God reveals to Abram is walk before me. Well, what does it mean to walk before God? Earlier in Genesis, Enoch and Noah were said to walk with God which means they lived in his presence, they ordered their way according to what God had revealed about himself. They were faithful to him. But the command here is different. To walk before God is to represent him. Abraham is commanded to represent God to the rest of the world. God called Abram to live in a special way that represented God's prescribed way of living. In all that God said to Abram, back in verses four through eight, He was speaking of what he would do 
of what God would do. He was speaking of what God would do with Abram. He was speaking of how he would bless Abraham. He was speaking of how he would uphold the covenant. But now in verse nine, there is an emphatic, as for you. He has switched from what he would do with, with Abraham and what he would do for his offspring to now you. You and your offspring and now the subjects of this matter, the subject of the covenant, and these are the conditions that Abraham is expected to live by to be a faithful partner in covenant with God. This verse applies to Abraham and his offspring and everyone else associated with him. Look at it. Verse 10 says, this is my covenant which you shall keep. Now there's some debate about what this is referring to whether he's looking ahead or looking back. Some take it as referring to the act of circumcision. Every translation seems to go in that direction, the way that it's constructed in English, where you see a colon after it says, this is my covenant, which you shall keep. And that's how we understand English to work. What follows that colon is explaining what was just said. But the way the covenant is referred to as my covenant and the, that pronoun this points to what's already been made. The way of referring to the covenant this way is also seen in Genesis 9 when God says that he's going to keep this covenant, this covenant with Noah, referring to what he had done from the beginning of creation. I do believe, though, that this, my covenant, is looking in both directions. Because other than the commands we see in 17.1, we don't see how Abraham and his descendants are to keep the covenant. So God is now expanding on that covenant. Abraham is being given a practice but that practice is a symbol. It symbolizes what is required for covenant faithfulness. And that symbolic act is circumcision. I won't explain to you what circumcision is, but I'll talk to you about what the symbol is. Because this, this section of the text is central for this whole chapter. Verse 11 clearly states that circumcision is a symbol. He says, it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and you. Now, the act of circumcision is important, but it's not the substance of the covenant. It is a sign. It is pointing to a greater reality. Well, what is that reality that it's pointing to? The main idea is that it's being used as defining membership in the covenant community. God marks off his people. And circumcision is given to Abraham here to define what that living in that covenant community is like in two different ways. For Abraham and the Israelites who came out of Egypt, we have to understand that there was a cultural context that this was received in. And the Israelites coming out of Egypt would have known that the only people that were ever circumcised in Egyptian culture were those who were being initiated as priests. Only them, only the priests were circumcised. So now this command, this condition, is given to Abraham and all of his offspring, all the males in his house. And what he's telling him is that the entire household of Abraham are going to be initiated as priests of God to the world. The priesthood of the nation also would have stood out to the original readers. And as I've said before, we're not exactly sure when Genesis was written, but we do know that it was written by Moses, so that it was delivered sometime between the Exodus and their entrance into the land of Canaan. So keep your finger on Genesis 17. And if you want to follow along, just real quick to see what's in Exodus 19. 
In Exodus 19, God is beginning to speak about his relationship with the newly formed nation, the nation that he's delivered. And starting in verse five, he says, now therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples. For all the earth is mine and you shall be, a king, be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. So Moses came and called the elders of the people and set before them all these words that the Lord had commanded him. So right there in verse five, the Israelites are told some very similar things that were said to Abraham. He says, if you will keep my covenant, this is a condition. And as a result, they will be kingdom, a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. So the first clear meaning of this sign is that it points to the reality that a nation that's gonna come out from Abraham is gonna be serving as priests of God to the world. They will serve as those who represent God to the world, showing, what the, showing the world what it means to live in a relationship with God. You can flip back to Genesis 17. The second reality that circumcision points is to a new heart. Circumcision is equated with a new heart that results in obedience and love for the Lord. It represents a repentant heart. It represents a born-again heart. Again, the newly formed nation of Israel would have picked up on this immediately. You don't need to turn there, but if you just want to note Leviticus 26 and Deuteronomy 30. When Moses delivered the instructions in Leviticus, he wrote in chapter 26 about blessings for obedience and then curses for disobedience. And in the part about blessings, the Lord speaks of conf confirming his covenant with them and of being their God. Again, language that's all related here. But then it turns to a long portion of curses. And the basis for the curses is, listen to this, walking contrary to the Lord. Rather than walking before him, the curses come as walking contrary to him walking against him. And all of these curses continue to stack up on each other until a time comes where they're broken, where they re recognize their rebellion, and this promise is given. If they confess, if then their uncircumcised heart is humbled and they make amends for their iniquity, I will remember my covenant. A similar thing is given to us in chapter 30 of Deuteronomy where Moses tells Israel if they return to the Lord, they will again be blessed. He says that the Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your offspring so that you will love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul so that you may live. This is new covenant language. The sign of circumcision is pointing to the reality of what God is going to do. So he's not saying you just need to do this act in order to be right with me. This act symbolizes the faith that you have placed in me and the work that I am going to do in you. That new covenant language is picked up by Ezekiel and Jeremiah. Very clearly, Ezekiel 11 says, sorry for all the cross-references, but I can't help myself. He says, this is Ezekiel 11:19. And I will give them one heart and a new spirit I will put within them. I will remove the heart of stone from their flesh and give them a heart of flesh that they may walk in my statutes and keep my rules and obey them. And they shall be my people and I will be their God. A condition of obedience is pointing to a reality of faith. A, a faith that's rooted in the regenerating work of, of God. 
So we see in Genesis 17, God commands Abraham to be circumcised and to circumcise those in his household as a sign of a covenant. A sign that is going to be a daily reminder that Abraham needs to walk before the Lord. Verse 12 tells us that he who is eight days old shall be circumcised. So as a brief note, if anybody's wondering why only the males received this sign or received any kind of sign at all about being in the covenant, the Israelites were living in a patriarchal society. Abraham was living in a, a patriarchal society. And every woman, every girl, was associated with a male. A woman was associated with her father. So by nature of the family relationship of being that daughter or once she got married with her husband. So women are not left out just by nature of the relationship that they had with the families. But why the eighth day? You shall circumcise them on the eighth day. Well, the significance of the eighth day should be understood in light of what circumcision symbolizes, which we saw is a new heart later a new covenant. The original readers of this likely would have understood this in the context of all of Genesis. Now, we started going through Genesis as a church about five months ago. The original readers or hearers of this probably would have heard Genesis in a very short period of time, perhaps even on a single day. So when they start hearing about days and numbers of days, they would have been thinking about creation days. Creation was finished on the sixth, seventh day of the week, but now here for the first time is a reference to an eighth day, an eighth day that signifies a new creation, a new creation that's tied to a new Adam, a new new Adamic role that was given to Abraham. Abraham was given the blessing of fruitfulness, he was given a place, he's given a dominion, and he's given a name, all like Adam. And now we have the promise of a new relationship, with a new people, where God said he would be their God and they will be my people. So circumcision is a ritual required for Abram and his family, signifying being born into this covenant community. And circumcision served as a daily reminder to walk before God. This covenant sign reminds the people of the role that they have as a priest because of the work that God has done in them. I have a couple important implications I want to point out to you. The first is that God's people are called to be marked off. We are called to be distinct. And the second, which flows out from this, is that as a distinct people, as a church, we are called to walk before God, to represent him, and we are called to be priests. Under the new covenant, our marking physically begins with baptism. When you were baptized, you made a statement to every witness of your baptism that you had identified with the Lord Jesus Christ in his death and resurrection. In other words, when you were baptized, you were saying that God has given you a new heart. When you were baptized, you proclaimed that you have been born now into a new covenant. And you made a pledge before God that you were joining by faith to Jesus Christ to represent him. At the same time, when you were baptized, the church is saying to you, you belong to Jesus. You have joined in our mission. You've been clearly marked off as God's, clearly marked off as Jesus's. In the church, all of us together are saying to the converted that you've been given a new heart to love Jesus and to show that love to the world. 
which is connected to the priesthood. Peter describes the priesthood in his first letter when he tells them that the church is being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood. The distinction between those who are included or not depends on whether or not they've responded to Jesus in faith. And those who have believed in Jesus, all of you here who have believed in Jesus are now God's people. And your task as God's people is to proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. The priesthood that we are called to is a call not just to individual Christians, but to the whole church. Yet, each one of us as individuals represent the church when we go out in the name of Christ. So, do your actions, your words, your manners, Show the world what it means to walk before God. I'm concerned for some of the things I hear and see that there are some who are influenced by a militant, confrontational approach. There are some loud voices out there, voices that people like to follow, who say that we are to tear down the world. And we listen to these voices because it appeals to our pride, knowing that God's way is the right way. But this approach leads to mocking, shaming, belittling, alienating those who are outside of the covenant, alienating those who are outside of God's godly requirements. But these voices have adopted the attitude of the Pharisees who condemn those who do not conform. Rather than woo the world, they're building a wall against them. On the other end of the spectrum are those of us who may be indifferent to the ills of the world. Perhaps they just see people living out their own lives, but they don't make any effort to show how all of our lives are accountable to God. They show no care that those that we are surrounded by are destined to meet God's just judgment and his wrath. In either end of these spectrums, we are not representing Christ. If we're to walk before God, we need to live openly, and by that I mean you're open about your own need for Christ. You're open about the love that he demonstrates to the ungodly. You're open about the patience and kindness that you seek to show that reflects the patience and kindness that he has shown to you, remembering that if he had not done so, you would not be his. As priests, we invite people to come to the feast, to come to that table, to know the Lord who has saved us and has called us because all of us have been rebels. All of us have deserved God's wrath. Some of us sitting here may still do. You're invited. Abraham believed who God was and he believed the promises. He received the sign of circumcision as a sign of the righteousness he received by faith, which called him to walk before God, representing God as a priest to a dark world. As God's covenant faithful people, faithful covenant people, we believe those same promises. We believe that we need to represent him. We also know that we are called to live lives of holiness. Again, in verse one, the second command from God to Abraham is to be blameless. In other words, God commands his people to live in a life that is pursuing holiness. The word blameless here has various meanings. It can mean complete, it can mean whole, perfect, without blemish. 
But the basic idea is, is it's a life of patterned obedience. It's a life of integrity. It's a word that's often joined with righteousness or uprightness. And just like the command to walk before him, being blameless is part of what it means when God says, you shall keep my covenant. In this context in Genesis, God is calling Abram to obey. He's calling him to be morally pure, impeccable, honest, and sincere in his covenant relationship. He's calling him to nothing less than what has been demanded of mankind since the beginning. God has always called for obedience, and he has always called for holiness. And in our defense of justification by faith alone, we have been very careful to exclude works of righteousness as the basis of our salvation. The Protestant Reformation, where we sit today, stands or falls on this truth that we are justified by faith alone. There are no works that contribute to my salvation. Genesis 15.6 is still true. God counts us righteous when we believe in him. More specifically today, now that Christ has come, we are counted righteous by believing in Jesus Christ. We are justified by our faith in Christ. Paul makes this clear in Romans 4.23 when he says, It, righteousness, will be counted to us who believe in him who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord, who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. Jesus has secured our lives in the new covenant. But our lives under the new covenant are not without the same calling as those who came before us. At the end of the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus tells the entire audience, you must be perfect as my heavenly Father is perfect. The New Testament is very clear that those who belong to Jesus Christ are to crucify the flesh with its desires. There are works in our flesh that we must kill. Some more cross-references for you. Galatians 5, starting in verse 19 verse th through verse 21, says, Now the works of the flesh are evident, sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I warned you, I warn you as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. Likewise, Hebrews tells us, 12.14, to strive with peace for ev with everyone and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. The justifying grace of God that we have in Christ is never separate from the sanctifying grace that he gives us. I pointed out a few moments ago in the last point, the circumcision in the flesh was a sign that pointed to the greater reality of the circumcision of the heart. That circumcision of the heart is a work that the Lord does that enables us to repent. It's the grace that enables us to cut off the sinful flesh. So another distinguishing mark of the Christian is that he is set apart to be holy in his or her conduct. And we must be careful because there's always a handful of wrong ways to think about things, wrong ways to think about personal holiness. It's wrong to think that we can attain any kind of holiness apart from faith in Christ. We cannot clean ourselves up apart from faith in Christ. And it's wrong to think that you don't need to fight for holiness because you're saved by grace. It's also wrong to think that you can attain perfection in this life. 
being careful to avoid these errors, we still need to be active to pursue holiness. And this could mean in large part that you are giving yourself to be accountable to your brothers and sisters in the church. That's, that is the context in which God has given us to pursue holiness. In our member covenant, we have a couple of commitments. The first one says that we will walk together in brotherly love as becomes members of a Christian church and exercise an affectionate care and watchfulness over each other and faithfully admonish and entreat one another as occasion may require. And the other one says we will seek by divine aid to live carefully in the world, denying ungodliness and worldly lusts and remembering that as we have been voluntarily buried by baptism and raised again from the symbolic grave, so there is on us a special obligation now to lead a new and holy life. These are the commitments that are drawn out from the scriptures that call us not only to be holy, but to help one another to be holy. So it's both personal and corporate. So are you living carefully? One way to understand this is do you know what triggers temptation in you? Are there situations, times, conditions where you know you're tempted to something? And knowing that some of these situations may be unavoidable, are you preparing your mind and heart ahead of time to deal with the situation? Take pride, for example. Let's say that you're prideful towards others. You're aware in, your, in yourself that you regularly see Mr. So-and-so make a bad choice, even a sinful choice. You end up judging that person to be less than you, or maybe it's not so extreme. Perhaps you're just proud of yourself that you didn't make such a stupid decision. Perhaps you think that your employer doesn't really know how things work, or your teacher has no idea what they're talking about. Maybe you're offended by your Christian friend who offers you advice about how to manage your family or your household. Do you take an assessment of yourself, knowing that these thoughts tempt you, and remove or resolve to remove those thoughts ahead of time before you enter the room? Do you, aware of your pride, remind yourself of your own sin, even that you're blind to your own sin and that you need the help of others? There's many other examples we could give about specific sins that we face, but in all of these situations, we need to be aware that we are tempted, we are fallen, and these temptations, if we are not careful, can overpower us and keep us from living a holy life that represents Christ. So God's covenant, faithful covenant people pursue holiness and live lives that represent God to the world, believing in the God who has made these promises, and lastly, God's faithful covenant people live in reverent fear. God's faithful covenant people live in fear, reverent fear. Genesis 17, 3, in response to God revealing himself as God Almighty, commanding Abraham to walk before him and be blameless, Abraham falls on his face. Abram knew that he was helpless. Abram knew that up to this point, he had not represented God well, nor had he been blameless. He had not been walking with integrity. And he knew 
that the calling that God was calling him to right then was not in line with the sinful tendencies of his own heart. So Abram falls on his face. But this is not a fear of dread or of judgment. It's a fear of humble submission. It's a fear that's rooted in trust. Abram knew that with God there is forgiveness of sins. He knew that God had already promised to bear the penalty for his unfaithfulness. He very well could have thought the words that say, if you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? But with you, there is forgiveness that you may be feared. That's Psalm 130. Abraham did not resign himself to God's mercy, just hoping that God wouldn't judge him. He responded to God's promises and faith. He responded to God's commands with obedience. God commanded Abraham to be circumcised and to circumcise those in his house. God also made a more explicit promise in verses 15 to 20 that Sarah would be the mother of the promised heir. Though this should have been assumed, as we saw last week, Abram and Sarai failed to believe that God would fulfill the promise through her, but God, in his mercy, renews the promise. He continues to work with Abraham to carry out the promises that he has made. And again, in verse 17, Abraham falls on his face. He falls on his face and he reveals his skepticism about bearing a child in his old age. And he even appeals for Ishmael to be the heir when he says, oh, that Ishmael might live before you. And like I said, it, it is shown that Ishmael will have a blessing, but the covenant, the ultimate blessing to, to be his God is going to be through Isaac, who will come through Sarah. So after God goes up from Abraham, he obeys. Paul shows in Romans 11, 4.11, that the obedience of Abraham described here is the expression of the righteousness of faith that he had by faith when he believed in the Lord. In addition to Abraham showing his faith by his work here was another motivation to obey. Genesis 17, 14 says, any uncircumcised male who is not circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin shall be cut off from his people. He has broken my covenant. So there's a very real threat to those who do not keep the covenant they would be cut off from his people. They would not be able to say, he is my God. God would not say, I am your God. You are not my people. The person who remained uncircumcised would be cut off from the covenant community. And we need to understand that this is referring to an adult who has refused to be circumcised here. He has refused to take the sign. Because we don't see eight day old babies refusing stuff. Not like this anyway. But a person who refused to take the sign has refused to participate in the covenant. They refused to be identified with God's covenant people. He may have aligned himself in certain ways with certain kinds of professions, but he has not kept the covenant. And ultimately, he's revealing his apostasy if he had a a confession to begin with, because he has broken the covenant, proving himself not to be of a circumcised heart. The language of breaking the covenant is the language that the prophets use later on to describe the apostasy of the nation of Israel. 
because they went after idols. They transgressed God's law. They had no concern for God's glory. They did not fear the Lord. And Abram's falling on his face reveals that he knows that there's a need for someone to be obedient. And he knew that the blessings that God had promised would come through his offspring. So the promise of Isaac brought that hope. But here is one who, in all intents and purposes, was miraculously conceived and born. The covenant is going to be established through Isaac. He is a child of promise. Now we know, ultimately, that the this child of Abraham or any of his other descendants until Jesus Christ kept the covenant. Jesus, the son of David, son of Abraham, would come to save his people from their sins. Jesus perfectly represented God and revealed God to his people. Jesus was perfectly blameless before his father in heaven. And Jesus trusted and lived in reverent fear. And in his obedient, reverent fear, he went to the cross. The sinless son of man and son of God was crucified for all of us who have broken the covenant. All of us that broke the covenant that God made from the beginning. Jesus rose from the grave to prove his victory over sin, as well as grant victory to all those who would join with him by faith. His work the work of Jesus is what has set us apart to be his own. And we respond in faith because he has circumcised our hearts. If you're sitting this, here this morning and you have not turned to Christ, I want you to understand what is going on here and what you're called to. The promise that God has made to be your God, to be his people, to bring blessing is available to you no matter how far broken you feel that you've come. And if you're indifferent to it, you also need to understand that God will hold you accountable, but he has made a way, as we just saw, as you just heard, through his own death and resurrection so that you can place your faith in him and have eternal life. And for the rest of us who do believe in Jesus Christ today, God has made you his own so that you would live in covenant faithfulness to him, to be his faithful covenant people. God invites us to fear him. And this sounds strange because we often associate fear with dread, but the way of life is through fear of the Lord. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. This life-giving fear is a fear that trusts God and draws near to God and seeks to obey God. Abraham demonstrated this fear in both ways. He appealed to the Lord when battling unbelief and the promise, and then he obeyed. Verses 23 and 26 both say that very day, Abraham obeyed by circumcising the males in his house. So how will you respond today to the things that we've heard this morning? Will you submit to God by faith today? Will you walk before him bringing the message of his salvation to the world around you? Will you pursue holiness, being active in killing sin and seeking to put on Christ to do what we ought to do? Remember, all of this is by grace and grace alone. We pursue holiness we represent God to the world because he is the one who circumcises hearts. 
He has marked us off as his people. And you, Trinity Church, have been marked off to represent God in Christ to a dark and dying world. Let's pray. Father, your grace and mercy is unsearchable. Because as we have read and heard and sang this morning, we have been at, in rebellion against you, but you have done the work and you continue to do the work to make us new. You have given us new hearts, brought us into a new covenant through your son. And this is not just for ourselves. It is for your purposes. Though we enjoy the wonders of communion with you personally, you have called us to go out to the world to represent you to a world, to bring the blessing that was promised through Abraham and ultimately came through Jesus Christ. Help us to be faithful. Help us to be faithful in our personal lives that we would not cherish sin, but put it to death. That we would not avoid the hardness and difficulty of pursuing holiness, but to embrace it, knowing that that is what is truly good for us because it keeps us close to you. All the while remembering that our relationship is founded upon the death and resurrection of your son. We thank you. We entrust this to you, and we trust that you will be continue to work in us as we go forward today. Amen.